Podcast. I'm Spencer Scott Holmes. And I'm Ryan Dunnigan. And we are going with uh, almost a different medium for the show. Actually, now that I think about it, I'm not too sure if we've ever done a novel on the podcast. You know, of course, we've done comic books. We've done scripts before. We've done other things maybe in the kind of reading medium, but probably had pictures involved or something like that. But I think this is the first time we've actually done a full-on novel in over 500 episodes on the show. I think in the early, like, it was, it was like right when some books came out, like right in the, um, right in the early episodes, right when, like, I think Neil Young's autobiography came out, I covered, like, the first, like, ten chapters of it or something, but, you know, it's mostly just Neil Young rambling, like, here's what I think about today, and here's why I like model cars, and here's why I fucking hate the government, you know, <laughs> so, but... But, like, I think that this is the first time we've actually done a deep dive. Like, we've referenced books yeah. we've read, but we've never really done, like, you're right, we haven't really done, like, here's a book that just came out. Yeah, well, that's the thing. is Yeah, we've talked about books before, but, like, more like, hey, and, like, the how you doing kind of stuff. You know, like, hey, I was reading this Clint Eastwood book, so I remember I did that one. And, yeah, there, there's some of those autobiographies and so on that, you know, you find something funny in or you mention that kind of part. But, um, no, going into the... Once Upon a Time in Hollywood by Quentin Tarantino, the full-on novel version of the thing. Um, we're deep diving into this, and this is one of those ones that, like, I will say right off the bat, like, I think, one, you definitely have to be the ultimate Quentin Tarantino fan. Like, if you dislike Quentin Tarantino's movies, the book is, like, as hardcore Quentin as you can get. Like, it feels like it's almost fan service for, like, the Quentin fans. Well, it's, it's a couple of things. It's, like, um, it's the story told out of order more so than the movie it is the uh it's quentin tarantino's own film theory combined with film history because mm-hmm. there'll be moments in like it really because you know there'll be moments in the movie where it just they mention something and they move on where if they mention that thing in the uh in if that thing they mentioned the book in the movie happens in the book then he goes on probably like a two-page explanation of the history of that thing yeah, so, I mean, that's kind of the cool thing about it. Is it gives you a lot more explanation to the scenes, gives you a lot more kind of, like, world-building type stuff in there, you know, and just kind of expanding on longer scenes, and then just different takes. Because the thing is, it's not just, like, a straight-up, like, you know, book where it just goes through the movie, you know, pretty much mostly the same. Maybe there's a couple things a little bit different, but all in all, it's kind of just a retelling of it, you know? I mean, and that's how those... You know, they used to have those kind of books all the time back in the day, and I know that's what Tarantino's going for. I mean, we grew up in the era where that was still very common, that you had, you know, the book that kind of recaptured the movie. And I I remember I didn't think much of it as a kid. I just was like, oh, cool, I got, like, a Godzilla book. Or, cool, you know, I got, like, you know, some of these other ones and so on I'd pick up here and there. I have a Mortal Kombat one. Like, I thought that was amazing to have. (laughs) The the movie novelization (laughs) to Mortal Kombat. (laughs) Yeah, like, when I found that, I was like, dude, this is amazing and so on like that. But then it's like, it was like, when I got older, I kind of, like, went, oh, I know why those really kind of came out. Because, you know, back in the day, the movie came out in theaters, and then you pretty much had to wait, like, generally about a year, if not longer, for the movie to come back out on VHS. But that novelization a lot of times came out, like, maybe around the time of theatrical release or even just, like, a little bit afterwards. So that was almost a way that you could kind of have a home copy, you know, without, um, you know... You know, without having to wait for the VHS part to have it there, you could almost, if I want to see the movie again, it's not in theaters anymore, I could read the book, you know, and have that kind of experience. Or, I mean, I, I know Kevin Smith even said it, like, on one of his shows once, that he, that was his way to watch, uh, in a sense, rated R movies, because he could go get the book, and his parents wouldn't think anything of it, but, you know, you couldn't go see the movie in theaters. 
there's that, and the other thing is these books would come out way before the movie would. So the other concept was like, oh, I get to read the book and know what's going to happen before I even see the movie. If you didn't feel if you feel it was being impatient. Now this is going to sound kind of weird because I never finished it. I only got maybe three chapters in. But the last movie novelization I bought, and probably one of the only movie novelizations I bought, aside from like some Star Wars books when I was a kid, was. Um, <laughs> The Ang Lee Hulk movie novelization. <laughs> that's like the only one. That's like the last one I bought, and I was getting so amped for the movie and got three chapters in, and just by the time the movie was out, it was like, oh, I'm already three chapters in, fuck it, and I just go see the movie. And um, what's interesting about this is it's not just a straight, boring novelization. Like, not, not boring, but I mean, like, not a straight forward like gimmicky novelization. Because I mean, when I first heard that he wrote the book to his own movie, I was like, okay, well, it's probably just going to be... He probably... I bet he has this... Just knowing Quentin Tarantino... Not that I know him personally, but you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. Knowing what he likes, I can see him liking, like... You know what? I, I love I love the movie, but the novelization is so much better. It's something so overlooked. I could just see him being kind of like... Something kind of like that, and actually having his favorite movie novelizations. So I could just see it being kind of a gimmicky companion, uh, companion piece of that, but it's not. It actually fills in so many things. Some things happen slightly differently, not that differently, but um, it's and it fills in so many missing many missing pieces from the movie and answers so many questions. And for that alone, if you really like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, it is definitely worth checking out. Now, we have both spectrums of it because you got the physical copy and read it like a full-grown adult, <laughs> and I... Knowing how slow it takes, how it takes me forever to finish a novel, and knowing we were on a time crunch for this, I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to get the audiobook. It's read by Jennifer Jason Lee, and it's really, I'm going to say, it's a really good audiobook because she might change her voice slightly or her tone depending on the character, but she's not doing that thing that so many other um, narrators do, where they're just like, it's a guy like, I'm a girl now. This is how I talk. Yeah. Oh God. Or like the, when it's little girls. Because I always just think it's even though I, I like Scott Brick doing Jurassic Park, but that's just when it gets to Lex, Timmy, Timmy. She's like, geez, just just say it like a man. Just don't don't say it like you think you're a five year old girl. You know what I mean? Just, but um, no, like, I, and I was always once like this book was like kind of hard to get for a second because at first it was like Amazon's like, oh yeah, we might not have this till the end of July. I'm like, well, what the fuck? I'm like, I don't really want. I mean, I'll get the Kindle one if I have to, but I this felt like one of those ones. I'm like, I kind of want the real book of this, so I kind of went on the search. I went to like a legitimate bookstore, and for some reason they didn't have it, and I kind of kept searching some other stores, and all of a sudden I'm like. I go to the grocery store. I'm like, I know this is such a long shot, but you know what? There's always that little book section in every grocery store. I'm just going to take a peek. I'm just going to find out. It was like literally right before um, I was going to see Black Widow premiere. I'm like, I'm going to walk down that aisle, see what's going on. And lo and behold, there was two copies of it sitting there. I mean, there was only probably about 30 books in total there. So that was literally like a one in like a million chance of finding them. I know it's brand new, so I mean, that's a higher be in there but i found it there so it felt like it gave me even more of that experience it gave me that feeling of like you know back in the day when you'd find the spinner racks of like novels in grocery stores and they used to have that time period where there was almost an entire aisle just dedicated to reading you know you'd have comic books in there you'd have magazines you'd have you know regular novels and so on picture books you know nonfiction, whatnot you know and now it's segregated to like a teeny tiny like you know almost like uh an anime section of like the 90s at like a blockbuster like, that's how small it is now. That's, 
that's a good way to explain it. And on top of that, I, I remember that those aisles, like sometimes you go looking through because every so often you're like, ooh, cool, Sonic comic or whatever. Mm-hmm. But majority of the shit would be on the spinning rack or on the shelves or usually just romance novels majority of the time that, that still whatever, was the like, main thing that was there when I picked the book up it was like a bunch of dudes with their shirt off books and then Tarantino's one yeah. and then maybe like a Dean Koontz thriller or something you know what I mean yeah and for some reason <laughs> Dean like, Koontz has his shirt off of the book cover too I don't know what that's about but. <laughs> just says fuck Stephen King <laughs> it's tattooed across his chest <laughs> but um but no, yeah, getting that book and like, you know, I know you said you wanted to speed read it by doing the audiobook, dude. I like, this is one of those books that like I tore through this thing. I mean, there was one day I read 150 pages in once and I like haven't done that in a while in the books. And it's not saying that something about like I enjoy reading a book and so on like that, but that always feels like that kind of falls on the back burner of back burners. You know, it's like after working on projects. You know, then it goes down to like, okay, I'm going to watch movies and play video games. Then it's going to go down, then I'm going to read comics. And then kind of book sort of ends up in that low end that like, hey, if you got some time, sure. But, you know, you run out of that time lots of times. But this was one of those ones that's just like, I sat down and maybe it's just, you know, the material itself and just really adding into an already amazing movie. And then just adding all these extra details that really make a huge difference. And what I really liked about the book, too, is it almost didn't like, it wasn't. It focused a lot more on, like, almost other things around the movie instead of just telling the main story and then adding extended scenes. It's almost its own, like, companion thing. But I definitely think it's one of those ones, like, it'd be weird to read this book without seeing the movie, though. I feel you'd be super confused. Yeah, yeah, I feel that way, too. But it also seems like something kind of like, if you were to read, if you were just to, like, um, read the book and watch the movie, it almost has this vibe of, like, every so often you'll see a movie based on a book and then 15 minutes in, you're like, oh, shit, they're already at this part or something like that. Mm-hmm. I feel like this kind of is not trying to give you that feeling, but it's kind of rearranging things in a way that would make... Like, the movie rearranges things in a way that would make it flow better for a movie. For a book that just kind of meanders and just kind of hangs out, the book flows in this particular way. And, and I know the movie itself feels like it meanders and just hangs out but after watching the movie not that long ago mm-hmm. and then getting like this audiobook just like a day or two later i'm like the movie might as well be just be like you know just be on cocaine going as fast as it can you know because yeah. there are certain things there are certain things in it like don't get me wrong i like them both i still probably prefer the movie if i was just because i mean it's not as much a effort to watch but at the same time the pacing and the way it goes, but this book still has a lot of just interesting information left out of the movie. And the thing about it is like, I feel like if you read this book and it lightly jumps, like, you know, after this, Rick would go on spoilers, Rick would go on and get this, get, get his illustrious career in Italy, X, Y, and Z. When they got home, some hippies would attack them. They'd kill those hippies and it would get them more roles just from the publicity. I'm just like, wait, you're just going to, you're just gonna plow over that. Like if you're reading this book, yeah. you'd be like, "You're just gonna dust over that. You're just gonna throw that aside." That should be. And then if you saw the movie, like, oh, okay, good. They are putting this part in there. You know? Yeah, that's what I mean. Because it's like it literally, in a sense, gives away the ending of the movie about chapter three almost. It was like so early on. I'm like, and, and yeah, it does just sort of brush it by. And I think the whole thing was, I think Tarantino's kind of looking at it like, "Yo, this is made for the person who really likes the movie," and this is you know, your extra fill-in kind of stories. Like, in a sense, because I kind of noticed, it's like, 
all the action scenes in the movie, generally in the book, that you know, he kind of realizes like, hey, action doesn't work nearly as cool in books, so we'll save that for the movie, but we'll give you all the fun details in the book. And I feel like that that in a sense makes sense to me. But it is weird though. Like when I saw that, I was like, that's why you almost it would be strange to read this book before watching the movie. You know, I think I think you sort of need to watch the movie first. Well, plus, aside from extra scenes, there's also just him going into uh, background and history of the different characters. Not just Cliff Booth and Rick Dalton, but other characters as well. Like Pussycat, for instance. Yeah. Charles uh, Charles Manson, even. And it really just takes a t- takes its time with it. And it actually works out. And it is it does just kind of jump from thing to thing. And sometimes, oh, right, that we were over here doing this thing. But when it, you're right about the action scenes... It kind of just, like, the whole thing with Bruce Lee, rather than just make you reread the whole scene with Bruce Lee again, what it does is it says he fucking hated Bruce Lee for this reason. And he kind of goes into, like, stuff we didn't see in the movie. Like, day one, before they were on the set, he saw Bruce Lee doing this and doing that. Then he heard stories about this. He heard stories about that. Some of it is just fictionalized. Some of it is stuff that apparently did happen. Mm -hmm. And then... A conversation between Rick and Rick and um, Cliff, and he's like Rick saying, "Man, that guy's really good." And Cliff saying, "He dan- he looks good. He's not that fucking good though." You know, getting all pissed off about it, and um, then just quickly summing up what happened in that scene, or if it's a scene we've already had in the movie, he expands on it by a lot. Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, even just small stuff like I remember, like you take like because the, the thing is in the movie in a sense all the charles manson type stuff really kind of is just sort of there in the background and in this one it, it adds chapters to it i mean like that pussycat like kind of background of that that was one of those ones where it's just like that was such a bizarre and it's like well it's like you i'm assuming it's all just real i'm like i, I didn't do the charles manson research but i'm assuming quentin tarantino did but the fact that like there was this 14 year old girl and her dad happened to pick up charles manson and be like hey this guy seems like a great guy i'm gonna bring him home for dinner tonight you know he looks like rasputin like well, well that seems safe right <laughs> it all worked out over there in russia <laughs> you know and then he brings them home they have a hell of a time at dinner and so on and then in that moment she just decide or like he convinces her hey let's go run away for two days and so on and then it, they run away and at some point like charles manson just says like hey okay here's the thing your parents are probably worried like you know yeah you just stole their 14 year old doll i'm pretty sure they're really worried you know but it's like you got to go back home and this is what you got to do you got to get emancipated so you just got to marry like any swinging dick that you fucking see in high school you know the second you marry him you fucking ditch town and you come running back to me and so on like that and then so she goes and she does that which is one of those things just like holy crap you're gonna go after this weirdo like that so on and then the dad, it, it breaks up the family. The mom's like, I can't take this anymore. So she divorces the dad. The dad decides to go find Charles Manson and shoot him in the head of a shotgun. But when he gets there, Charles Manson convinces him, you know, that he's like, hey, man, dude, you just got to come hang out. Here's some of my girls and whatnot. We'll drop ass. It'll be a good time. And then next thing you know, they're best fucking buddies. And he's sort of like a, a offshoot member of the family. They're like, what the hell? Like, I almost felt like if that was in the movie, that almost would have been just really more interesting, too, in a sense. Well, it's also one of those things where it kind of, you know, Charles Manson, he doesn't need any help making you hate him. At the exact same time, though, that makes you hate him so much more. And it's also like, it's kind of funny hearing Cliff try to run through his head. Because this is what Pussycat is telling Cliff. He's like, so let me get this right. And he just basically replays the whole thing. And where he's going to blow this dirty hippie's head, head off. Instead, he wants to join his cult and hang out with him. 
And he's like, yeah, pretty much. He's like, I don't fucking get it. Yeah. <laughs> like, <Just laughs> Cliff is like, I'll say, as great as Brad Pitt is in the movie, there's so many things in this that make Cliff so much funnier. Like, or like added scenes that make him like, that develop him and make him like just funny as fuck. Wait, this sounds so weird. This is how I sort of look at, like, it's kind of like Batman v Superman, and sort of, in a sense, like, I mean, Rick definitely has more scenes in the the book, too, of course, but it's almost that sort of thing. I feel like if uh, Brad Pitt was Superman and Rick was Batman and someone like that, like, you know, there's a lot more Brad Pitt scenes in the book. This almost feels like, man, Brad Pitt sort of got his scenes kind of cut in the, the theatrical version. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's how I sort of felt about it. But just even all that stuff, and even the other thing too is just, and maybe because it's just a book, and you can kind of go in these details. But like the dirtiness and the griminess, and like kind of like the the grunginess that like Tarantino goes in describing all this stuff, it makes the movie actually feel much more clean and safe, and like almost washed over compared to like how like when you read about those characters in the book, and even just like puss, because Pussycat just sounds like nasty as all can be, like in the book, it makes you almost want to like hurl, like why would you even pick her up, kind of thing. Well, Margaret Qualley's really is a really pretty actress, but but then they describe some of the things, some of the way she looks, this and that. And at some point, like it gets like even X-rated for a second. When um, yeah, in the movie, when uh, they're in the car, she just drops her head in his lap and offers to suck his dick, and he's like, "Nah, no, Law Dog's been trying to get me forever. And it's not going to happen with you, X, Y, and Z, whatever." And then um, in the in the book, she ends up taking off her her, uh, her shorts. shorts and then it's describes soiled panties. It mentions like, it oh, multiple times in that. Fuck. Yeah, so it's like, oh, like that kind of stuff. And you're just like, oh. And then just like, you know, she's apparently fingering herself looking at Rick. And he's all like, or uh, Cliff. And, being, and he's kind of like, that's nice, but it's not going to happen. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's the thing. Is that this one, like, especially the book, the book is like hardcore like it's like almost if the movie was like light r and it's not light r but like it it almost makes the movie feel like it's borderline r the book is like extreme r going nc-17 like that like that feels like you're getting that extra like the unrated cut like if it was 2000 american pie was coming out (laughs) well there's also um another part like it i was uh, i was apparently wrong me and probably other people but i always assumed the whole thing did did uh cliff kill his wife or not i would assume he didn't he just seems like he wouldn't do that reading this book though oh yeah he would totally kill his wife because he did kill his wife and it goes into the details of it and what's interesting to me is usually if you do something like that in a movie or a book or or anything i feel like the guy is just like that's all he is he's a murderer and you know, I'm not that not that's something that should be taken lightly. But the guy's just a fucking murderer. What, it's, what's interesting to me is the movie treats it of like he murdered people, but it's not what he does all the time. He just has like he's a guy who wants to be left alone. If shit goes bad, this is what he's gonna do. So it's one of those kind of things that I think is an interesting approach rather than just being in that day he went crazy and just wanted a killing spree. It's like I can kill him, but um, you know, I'd rather not. But I can if I want to. So we'll see how that goes. Which I think is just kind of an interesting way to present him. Well, yeah, well, the interesting thing in this one, too, is they make Brad Pitt out. Like, dude, like, Brad Pitt has killed more people than, like, every Clint Eastwood movie combined. Like, like the, the, he, he, like, killed like, most Japanese soldiers in World War Two or something, right? Yeah, and, but he was also, but he, like, he's like Cotton in, like, King of the Hill, where, like, he also was fighting in, like, the Eastern Front and fighting the Italians and stuff. Where it's just been like, 
You know, it's like, I was in, you know, both of them, Japan and Germany. Yes, it was. Like, that kind of thing where it's just like, he's he's been, like, everywhere in this war. He's fighting the Philippines and so on like that. But then also, there's those other kind of cool scenes. I mean, going back to, I guess, the one where it expands on him shooting his wife. Because once again, the movie, that's like a 20-second scene. Maybe, maybe it's a little bit longer than that. But it's just her kind of bitching. He's kind of getting a beer, has a spear gun in his hand, and then it kind of cuts. But in this one, it explains it's like, oh, yeah, she's been bitching at him for like a whole – ever since they've been married. Like he would – she would bitch him out in front of his friends, in front of his coworkers, just random people on the street and so on like that. So like nobody seemed to like this girl and so on. And it seemed like in the incident, like even – you know, did, did he accidentally just bump the trigger or whatnot? It was just one of those ones that was a hairpin trigger and so on. But it explains that it splits her in half, and then he holds her body together for seven hours – before the Coast Guard or whatever comes to come pick him up, you know. And in that moment, they have, like, this seven-hour, like, conversation where it's almost like that's probably the best conversation they've had since they first met. Yeah, that was a very interesting scene just because it goes into graphic detail, not just, oh, she got shot. I mean, I assumed it got shot. I mean, I don't really know the details of a harpoon gun, Mm -hmm. but apparently they can split you in half, according to this movie, unless it's just Tarantino... uh, physics but the thing is when it goes into the detail and just says like oh no he did kill his wife intentionally it was a spur of the moment thought and the minute he pulled the trigger he immediately regretted it but he went through it but the thing is so that was one thing that was just kind of like oh you know it didn't ruin the character for me because i always assumed it was just meant to be um ambiguous like did he or did he not mm-hmm. let the viewer decide no not <laughs> the case he totally murdered her and he did feel bad about it, but at the same time, it made a, it made a point that like she was a really shitty, horrible person, this and that, even though he did feel bad about killing her. Now, it goes into a, a couple other things. The, the one thing I about his character, like, well, I wish he didn't do that, but at the same time, makes him more of an, a complex character, is he got Brandy through dogfighting. Mm-hmm. And through all that, like he ended up liking Brandy, and he's like, I don't know if I can put her through that again, because I'm starting to get, grow attached to this dog. And the scummy-ass guy who he was in in uh, cahoots with to take her to the dog rings, he's like, no, here's the thing. We know she's going to fall apart at the next job, so that what we're going to do is we're going we're gonna to present her like she's unbeatable, and then we're going to bet against her. And then right there, he kills him and like gets rid of the car just walks Brandy back home down the highway. So it's like one of those things like Cliff's not Cliff's. He was already a bad motherfucker, but in this book, they really get across like how much he could just take a life and feel nothing about it. Um, well, cause that's that scene too, before you go any farther on that, like, cause that one's really, it builds up even more into that too. Cause that, that's the thing. And I guess the dog fighting thing, I know it's like, it makes sense though. Cause like, why would the dog have all these like great skills of like fighting at the end? So like, that's where it kind of comes from. You know, but it's like that guy that was a buddy of his that owed him money, and it was like it, that's the thing that makes it more interesting is they were good friends. He knew he's kind of one of those guys that kind of a fuck up, but Cliff sort of took care of him, you know, because that's sort of what Cliff does. He kind of takes care of like messed up people, in a sense. And um, he's like, hey man, you know, I know you, I got that. I know I owe you three thousand five hundred dollars. I know you're gonna want it. He's like, but here's the thing: you and I both know I can't, you know, I won't pay you back, and that's just kind of how it is. But he's like, I got the next best thing. He's like, I got this dog, Brandy, and so on. You know, and uh, with this dog, we can make money. And so that's where it kind of goes. And they kind of build this relationship. And it's just like, 
you know, Cliff kind of knew it was like, okay, well, we'll do these dog fights just so you can kind of pay me back and we can kind of get there and so on like that. But once that's done, that's it. And when the one guy, you know, says that, like, hey, I don't care about the dog anymore. Let's just kind of get, you know, 20000 extra dollars. Then he, like, you know, they have that scuffle and snaps his neck and so on. Just that, that whole, like, build up in that scene, like, was a very, I was very interesting. And I thought that, like, it does work kind of in there because it's that sort of thing that Cliff's that kind of guy who he does he always does sort of the right thing in general but he's stuck in a lot of like dirty and dark you know places where you know you might not you know it might not be right what you're doing at the moment but you're working your way back out of it and he's the guy who's going to do the, the tough job of like what needs to be taken care of yeah yeah that's a good way of putting it and there's the other part most of it's, it's most so, so far mostly just about Cliff because he's he is like the movie he's the best part of the book but there's so many other things that are great about the book too but mm-hmm. then there's like the third time because it makes a point like that was the first time he got away with murder that was the second time he got away with murder the third time he got away with murder was uh is little Italy was, he was in little Italy and he was on a date with a girl that he knew and the girl was now a prostitute or an escort or something to that effect. And he, they were just getting some pizza in Little Italy, and he's just like, in, he. I think it's not that long after the war by this point. Yeah, he's I, I just think kind it's of, in like the early fifties or something. I think this is actually the first time he kills somebody. Yeah, uh, somebody outside the war at least. Um, so he says he's over there. He's having a conversation with the girl, and he's like, "Those guys over there, those are my pimps," and. They're gonna, they're gonna like try and rough you up if you're here too long. It's like just go to the bathroom. Don't gotta go like go to the fucking bathroom, you know. Mm-hmm. And then he's sitting there, and these guys are trying to be big dick swinging, trying to talk shit to Brad Pitt. He is not having it. He does not care any less. And as soon as like one of them is trying to like get a little closer, he just pulls out a gun he had well, on him, just shoots him both right there. That, though, it's like once again, this has like such a great Tarantino buildup because he looks at guys, he goes, hey. Uh, you guys Italian and whatnot? And the guy's like, I'm oh, fucking Italian. Look at look, oh, look yeah, at this. I'm a fucking Italian and someone like that. And he's like, so you guys are Italian, eh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's like, kill a lot of fucking Italians. And they, they kind of have a puzzled look and goes, what? And he slams down his war medals. I think that's just such that's a badass right, fucking yeah. thing. Like right there, he slams <laughs> down the war medals being like, yo, I got these in fucking Italy during World War II. I killed tons of Italians and so on. Then he slams down a thirty-eight pistol on there, and these guys who thought they were tough shit are just like, what the fuck is going on here? And then he goes, you know, after a couple more, a little bit of a conversation, proceeds to shoot both those guys in the head, then stands up and then shoots them a second time in the head to make sure, double taps them. Like, dude, that, that scene right there might, might be my favorite scene in the entire book. That was a very Tarantino. That seemed like a scene right out of Reservoir Dogs or something. Yeah, like that scene. Speaking of Reservoir Dogs, after reading this book, I feel Reservoir Dogs would actually be real. I'd love to see a, the novelization of Reservoir Dogs done by Tarantino because that would be the perfect one. There's some of his movies I think that would, this would actually work really well for too, but I feel Reservoir Dogs would be really cool just to see Tarantino's like you know full vision of that whole story. Um, did you uh, listen to the whole Joe Rogan podcast he did? Yeah, yeah, I listened to that. And I know he's talking about doing that as like a play, but I feel like the novel would be perfect for Reservoir Dogs. Because he talked about some of would, the other ones, but well, be interesting because he said not not that I would want this to be his last movie. I wanted his last movie to be something new or Kill Bill Volume Three, one of those. But um, I uh, he he was talking about he had the idea at some point to like remake Reservoir Dogs with a new cast and the idea of like how do I differ from like the first movie I made compare 
to which I kind of I kind of get that that would be interesting and I would see it but another part of me is like I know Reservoir Dogs by now is like almost a 30 year old movie but I guess it doesn't feel like it to me it still feels like kind of new not new but like it, it doesn't feel like old enough to warrant a sequel to me but I guess a movie that in the it's almost 30 years old would by this point I guess you know? or like a remake well I think if that wasn't if he didn't have this like master plan of you know 10 movies though he technically has more than that but um you know, uh, at the end of the day, um, I think the idea that, like, just the idea of being, like, hey, like, that's, like, something that, like, if you made that, like, in your 70s, it would be kind of interesting. It'd be, like, almost if um, Scorsese said, hey, I'm going to make Mean Streets again, but, you know, now at my age. I just think the idea of that, I know some people would be like, what, that's that's kind of weird, but I'm like, I think as a creative, it's just something's kind of interesting about taking, like, the very first thing you did and sort of remade it, you know, now if everything you sort of know. I remember... Uh, Trey Parker and Matt Stone mentioned that like a while back that that would be kind of a fun idea to do of uh, Cannibal the musical is just take the take you know the money they spent on it then inflate it to today's price and just see how you know well they could make it nowadays. That would be interesting, I guess. I guess I already view Reservoir Dogs like a perfect movie. Yeah, I mean, I so do too. it's one of those. I guess with only ten, if he's only going to make ten movies and call it quits, don't do that. But if Maybe he changed his mind, decides to get back into filming at some point. Then yeah, go for it. Um, that would be an interesting idea, though. Just seeing who we would get to play these different characters and whatnot, yeah. which is probably I'm sure you'll get a lot of like screen actors wanting to jump on to be in the play, just to be directed by Tarantino. But um, another thing this movie does, as we said, is it, I mean that this book does is it goes into like if they mention a movie or a particular actor, it often goes into heavy detail about here's how this movie got made. Here's how that movie changed the film industry. And they get across, like, when they first introduce uh, Cliff Booth, they get across that he, despite, you know, being a World War II veteran who killed a lot of Japanese people, his favorite director is uh, Kira Kurosawa. And he had, and, he, and he says, like, look, and he basically says something to the effect of, like, yeah, sure, American movies can be fun, but they're acting. They don't come across all that real. They, they act the only the way that an actor acts where something from Italy or something from uh, England or Japan, something that actually had the war happening there. Those have a little bit more of a rougher, tougher kind of vibe to them because they're still recovering and they, there is something that came out through their vision on that. Yeah, no, I, I like that kind of thing that like, Almost in a sense, Rick Dalton's in a he's the actor, but in a sense, his world's kind of almost closed minded. He's just more the kind of guy who liked cowboys as a kid and then just wanted to act in westerns and almost doesn't care about anything else beyond almost like his kind of little world where then you got Cliff and it's the guy who's the stunt man, but he's the guy who actually technically is into film. He's into the wide spectrum. He likes the foreign pictures. He goes to see the movies with the subtitles that Rick won't go see and so on like that. And I just thought it was funny because when it goes in that whole Yojimbo and Mifuni and all that kind of stuff, I was like, shit, that was the last episode we just did. It felt like it all tied into that. I was thinking that same thing. Yeah. <laughs> it was like this one right there. And then the other one too is it talks about. And even had the whole thing with, um, with, uh, what was the other part of that? There's, uh, he went into like, I don't remember the name of the movie, but there is some movie and I'm sure it's a movie Tarantino loves. It was like a first, like very graphic sex comedy and people saying it's just porn. Like, well, that's just what the critic says. Yes. Like Martin Schwartz. He asked his uh, secretary, want to go see this movie? And says like, yeah, you got a blowjob on the way there. And they had a nice time watching the movie. And then kind of goes into like, this is the first movie that helped kind of 
usher in a lot of nudity in movies, kind of help normalize things. At the time, it seemed very graphic, but now, in comparison, it would be somewhat tame. Yeah, I know, just going into, like, the, the, in a sense, the first time beyond, like, weird foreign, like, you know, French movies and so on like that, that here's something you could actually see in the U.S. cinema and whatnot. Um, so I think that's kind of neat. I also liked how it went into, like, Cliff's outfit that he has on the beginning of the movie where he's got just, like, the um, the jean jacket and the pants and everything like that and how he got it from the the Born Losers, the, um, the uh, shit, uh, the sequel to that, um, trying to blank on. I know I got sitting right here if I look around. The Billy Jack series. Like, and it's like oh, right. Brad Pitt worked with Tom Laughlin on there. And um, don't you just love that? I, I just love that I could just turn and find that fucking movie on my shelf just to remind myself. I don't have to even look it up. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I love, like how he goes in that. It's like, hey, he worked on that Born Losers movie. And I was like, I just watched that actually kind of recently, too. So there's a lot of these things t- tied in there. And they were going to say, hey, you can get 75 bucks or you can keep that wardrobe. So he kept the wardrobe. Yeah, but that seems like a very a very uh, a cliff thing to do. Yeah. Another thing they do is they actually they expand on Martin Schwartz a little bit. Like, mm-hmm. in comparison to the movie, to the book, I'm going to say he's in about the same equal amount comp- and compared to the length of it and all. But this extra few scenes they give him and the expanded scene at the beginning with uh, Cliff, uh, with uh, names with Rick Dalton, that whole scene at the beginning, instead of being a bar, it's in his office. And it's a very interesting scene because there are certain things they say in the movies that you realize when reading the book, oh, that's a loaded statement. Because when he said in the, in, the, uh, in the movie, he says, like, I was on that uh, bingo... Bingo Roger show with that kid, uh, Scott Brown, you know? And the reason why he just said that kid, uh, Scott Brown, like, it's because he didn't like him. He didn't want to show him that much acknowledgement. And he goes into detail of why he didn't like him while working on this movie or work on this show with him. And out of that, the scene really expands. And they make Martin Schwartz to be like, he is no nonsense, no bullshit. And you expect this guy just to be, like, an asshole. Just kind of like, he's going to be your best friend and then just be a fucking dick to you once he got what he needed from you. But, yeah, I just thought the movie just never gave him a chance or opportunity to do that. But the book, it's like, no, no, he's actually a really nice guy who's looking out for people, but he's going to tell him like it is. Yeah, that's what I kind of like. It's like, in a sense, the Al Pacino character just full on. He's helping out Rick like nobody's business at the end of the day, but he's going to be like, hey, I'm going to tell you it. If, you know... you're going to screw yourself over if you're in this, like, you know, these pilot seasons and so on, being these TV shows and just having the longer one there. And then, I mean, it's, just, it's even just like the little, like, almost like running sort of narration commentary that kind of adds to it just to dial in these other characters and things that are kind of mentioned and small stuff that gets kind of passed over. I, I just think all that stuff in there is just really cool, you know, just just to add that extra bit of detail. I mean, I know, I know it sounds like, it's like, yeah, that's like what a book sounds like in general. I'm like, yeah, but you know what I mean? Like, it's different when you get, like, sort of like, hey, here's a director and it's almost like he's giving you like almost his notes. It feels like. I'm glad I, I'm I'm glad I got um this uh, how do I put this? I'm glad this movie and this book came out way later than like let's say Jackie Brown or Kill Bill, just because I first off think I would have way more appreciation for this movie now, as well as this book because this kind of style of writing I could not stand back in high school and early college. Now I've kind of come around to it. Maybe it's not my preferred stuff. I prefer stuff more streamlined. But for being the kind of book this is, which is kind of like a meandering book, and it's kind of like if someone has a thought, we're just going to focus on that thought and let it wander the way someone would in real life probably. 
So I think that that really helps this book just because all the little details, like so many small things. Like when he's on the set of Lancer, uh, Rick Dalton, mm-hmm. and he's having that back and forth with Jim Stacy. You don't, I mean, he says a few things. Like you can see he's a little irritated about the uh, great, not getting the great escape. You can see he's a little irritated about that, but this book drives home that he, that is like one of the sorest points for him. It's always brought up, always brought up. And these two, even though you may not notice it right off the bat in the movie, in the book, there is like tension. They're having all these kind of like subtle, passive aggressive, kind of coded language at each other. Like something that's, you can't really say that guy's being a fucking asshole, but between two actors and kind of know what's a sore point, what's this, what's that kind of like fucking with each other but being kind of like not really at the same time. Yeah, well, just even the small stuff like when he's kind of sitting there in the chair kind of like he's like thinking to himself. He's like, okay, that that asshole hasn't fucking come over here and introduced himself to me. It's his fucking show. He's got to be the man to come over here and introduce himself to me. You know what I mean? Just little buildups like that. Like, you know, that, that's how you – that's the civil way to do it and so on like that. And just, yeah, really expands on that character too and whatnot and – just even like when they have that sort of bar scene at the end where they're kind of like just kind of talking actor shop and so on and getting kind of drunk. And then there's like the Tarantino's dad in that scene and what have you or stepdad, whatnot, you know, and kind of building that up there. And just when he does go into that great escape thing and then it's almost like Rick just lets it out. He has like almost like three pages of explanation to explain like why he would never get this and how he's thought about it like real hard at one point in time. And, you know, this just drives him up the wall. You know, it's just, it is kind of like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I kind of see that it's almost like he's got that Steve McQueen like issue, you know, the same thing, which is actually kind of interesting because the book even ends with a Steve McQueen scene and they still even have like that tension when they see each other there. Also, just the whole aspect of him being kind of like, look, I have a whole career. I yeah. was the star of Lancer. I was in the 14th Fist of McCurney or something, whatever it was. I was in all these different things. I've done all these shows, but all anyone ever wants to talk about is how I almost got The Great Escape, which I did not almost get, you know? So, and that was just kind of like, he just, they just really nailed that home. So that was just a very passing thing in the movie. I mean, you can see it bothered him, but it wasn't like, it didn't hang over. It's like brought up like three or four times in the book. Mm-hmm. And, um, going back to the whole Martin Schwartz thing, I wanted to say that opening scene while talking. And when he realizes that, you know, he's got to go to Italy to make Italian Westerns, you mm-hmm. know, he, uh, he starts crying, realizing he's like, I'm sorry, I'm embarrassed. And then like, you know, Schwartz not being, he's like, what are you, some kind of pussy? You know, instead of being that, he's like, no, I understand, I get it, we're human, we have to, it's good if an actor can cry, because that means he's still in touch with his emotions, you gotta balance that, so, and you got all these eyes on you, it's a very, this job is for very sensitive people, so I understand, you okay? You know, kind of like, and then there's another scene later where, it's where gloves come off with Schwarz, and he says like, look, just the spaghetti western thing, it's just, it's just not my cup of tea, He's like, then he kind of goes on this long story about this actor who, I don't remember what actor it was, but it was an actor that did a bunch of spaghetti westerns. And he says, like, well, he didn't so do let spaghetti, he did some... German westerns in, like, the, like the, Ger- that's right, in like the late yeah. 40s, early 50s. And he had the same problem, too. He's like, I don't want to go over and do a bunch of, you know, if a Germans and they're going to have a French guy play a Native American and all this kind of stuff like that. That, that, that was where it was going, it was, which is actually kind of interesting because now it made me kind of interesting. I'm like, dude, I want to look up some of these, like, German westerns that were made in, like, the late 40s and 50s. That just sounds amazing. 
yeah, I don't even know about those. That's right. And he, and then he says to him, he says to him, I'm going to ask you what I asked him. What the fuck do you got to do that's so important? <laughs> you know? It was something to that effect. Like He was done being nice. He's been nice this whole time. He says, you don't realize the opportunity I'm giving you here. All right? Just, I'm trying to help you. Get out of your own way. Yeah, well, it's even like the built too, when he's talking about the guy. He's like, hey, the guy went over there. You know, I, he had the same issues and so on. He, he went to work for six weeks. You know, he did the German Western and whatnot like that. He's like, next thing you know, he's got... Five other German westerns that he does with that same character and so on. That thing becomes such a big hit in Europe that once he's done with the movies and they hire other people, they actually have to change the name of the character because they can only associate that character with that actor and so on like that. It was a big deal and so on. Like just a long kind of like, dude, you're like – I know it's like, Rick, you don't think it's a great thing, but let me tell you, you you were missing out on a giant opportunity there. And it, he goes into the point of, like, he explains, like, I heard Quentin Tarantino say this about Rick Dalton in interviews when the movie was coming out, as well as Leo DiCaprio say the same thing. But he says things that basically, like, look, you just want to be a, a TV cowboy. TV cowboy's a passing fad, mm-hmm. all right? You, at some point, you could have got, got rid of your pompadour and could have done this and could have done that. But I hate to tell you this, but times are changing, and with that, movies are changing. Film is changing. So you can act like spaghetti westerns aren't the next big thing and aren't going to have a revolution, aren't going to like change the film industry, or you can just keep on getting your ass kicked in every pilot you go into. Yeah. Well, it's that sort of thing because that's like the almost like the interesting kind of dynamic of this movie is it's in that right that time period where Hollywood's going from like the classic old studio style to like the independent or like, you know, somewhat more independent. You know, risque, hardcore, new Hollywood of, like, you know, Martin Scorsese and kind of proto, like, George Lucas and Francis Ford Coppola and all that kind of stuff right there. So it's just, like, this the teetering part, you know, when things like um, Easy Rider and stuff kind of come out. And it's just, like, you know, in a sense, because Easy Rider at the end of the day is a cowboy movie, but just that is about the most modern cowboy movie you could have at the moment. They also do a lot more with Sharon Tate in the movie, too, mm-hmm. in the book, I mean. Yeah, they definitely kind like, of... It, Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, I was just gonna say is that like they definitely give her more stuff. Like they even talk about how she even got from like she comes from like Texas to like California, and she kind of like you know hitchhikes there with like, which is kind of funny because it almost feels like sort of like that. Almost seems like that's a setup for like one like the uh, the Charlie Charlie's Manson um, like girls. But it's like, oh no, that's Sharon Tate. She just randomly hitchhiked her way to Hollywood, thinking that you know she was gonna. You know that that was her only way to get there, and so on. And she finds you know an old cowboy guy who's just just all he does is go out to the rodeos and wins belt buckles and so on you know and has a little scene right there that and then there's also like because I guess the thing about the movie is you just watch Sharon Tate having like a chill easygoing Sunday to herself mm-hmm. but the thing about that is when you read it in the book it's kind of like here's what she's thinking about that reminded her of this that reminded her of that and it also goes out of its way to like it kind of makes you like not really care about Roman Bolanski. Like, it acknowledges his skill, but also just makes him seem kind of like a fuck-up at the same time and has little man syndrome. Because, you know, like, Steve McQueen, I don't know how true this is, but Steve McQueen and Roman Polanski fucking hated each other. Mm-hmm. And there's that part in the movie when he sees her and he picks her up and spins her around. He's like, McQueen would do that all the time just to fuck with Roman because <laughs> Roman knew he wasn't physically strong enough to do that. 
Yeah, exactly. Because it's just like one of those. What kind of makes it like that? That gives the same thing too, where it's almost like you have your World War Two kind of like actor guys, you know, your macho man, the tough guys, and so on like that. And then you sort of have like your new wave guys, like Roman Polanski, who are just kind of like almost a little like kind of like you know Nibbish artsy and, fartsy, yeah. like you know. Th- that's what they. I mean, they, they make you know very detailed movies and so on like that but you know it's like they didn't go to war they, they don't they're not you know suited for like a hardcore lifestyle you know they need almost like that you know different take and i think just that together is almost that kind of thing like how are you going to compete with a guy who like served in world war ii in a sense you know what i mean exactly exactly it's kind of the same like, thing as like po- is cliff even too i'm surprised that there's actually no steve mcqueen and cliff ones but maybe it's just those characters would almost feel too similar maybe once they're next to each other yeah, yeah, I could see that. Well, it doesn't hold a whole lot of like. I guess we lightly mentioned the Bruce Lee thing because, because uh, you know, the, won't won't go into the whole thing with it. But I mean, I guess because since Tarantino's on the media circuit pushing the book, the Bruce Lee conversations popping back up again. Mm-hmm. And in this book, though, it will say even though it says he was kind of like full of himself and a little arrogant, at the same time, it acknowledges what he would become. In the impact he would made make, and he was talented, and he was like it's almost kind of like saying, "Yo, he was being kind of a dick at this point, but at the same time, he deserved all the good, all, all the all the um, can't think right. Now. He he deserved all the uh, success he got because he was really talented, he was really good, and this and that." Well, I think as people kind of forget that, like, it's it's weird how it's almost gotten kind of forgot. But there used to be a time where it's like I always feel like there's two types of Bruce Lee's. There's the, the wise sensei Bruce Lee, which is the only part that's kind of remembered. But then there's also douche Lee, which you you see it in a lot of Chinese movies and stuff too, where it's just like I you know when I think he, you're just the young buck guy, you know, who's the new hot thing, you know, no matter what, you're gonna have an attitude. I mean, like. Any kid who's like, let's you know, let's be honest, it's a kid. He's like 22, 23, 24 years old. You know, you're gonna have the attitude. I mean, that's you know, that's where you get that kind of stuff. Like, why there's characters like Jan Lee and like Dead or Alive and things like that too. Is like, I always feel like that's kind of douchely, where it's just like he's got the attitude, he's got the big sunglasses, he's you know showing off his stuff. Because I remember like when he would go kind of back to. I, I say this like I like I was there. Like I remember, but like in like you see it in Chinese movies where he goes back to China and everybody kind of looks at him like, dude, why don't you just be more humble? Like, what are you showing off for and so on like that. I think it's like there's a scene like in one of the. I think it's in. I want to say it's It Man, but it might be the second It Man or something like that, where, like, he shows up, he's got all these fancy things, he's got a car and everything like that, and he's like, come on, man, like, you know, we, you just go, like, you know, I'll drive you to wherever you need to go. And he's like, no, I prefer walking. It, Kung Fu is a much more simple thing to me, and I think it's like Bruce Lee, as time went on, kind of became the wise sensei master, and this is 69, so it's definitely early days Bruce Lee. Yeah, yeah, and I get that. At the same time, um... Well, go, just going off of what um, I think Shannon Lee is his, his daughter, daughter. What she said is like, well, also to keep in mind though, you were an Asian guy. And he, she, he was an Asian guy in America in the '60s, surrounded by a bunch of like cocky dudes in the in film industry. So he had to be equally as cocky back to him. So it's kind of like a give and take kind of thing, half and half. I mean, granted, we weren't there. It's all just hearsay. But at the same time, I do like that this book... Because the movie, it does portray Deuce Bruce Lee as kind of a dope. But the book does have this thing like, yeah, this, he was being an asshole that day. But he did go on to do this, and he was naturally gifted, and he does deserve that. And I honestly think I'm not trying to, like... 
I'm not trying to like write rewrite it for Tarantino or anybody. But my own head canon, if Cliff Booth, it also going into all his world, like it goes into his World War II exploits and other people he killed. You kind of see after reading this how he could be Bruce Lee, you know, because mm-hmm. we like to think Bruce Lee is the guy who couldn't be taken down. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, he was a human. I, I could see Muhammad Ali knocking him out, you know? Yeah, well, I think that's the thing, because I think people are getting all kind of weird up against Tarantino, but it's really one of those things. It's like, one, uh, in a sense, Tarantino's kind of the guy who almost reintroduced Bruce Lee back to people once again, you know, during the Kill Bill era and so on, kind of like bringing it, you know, once there. And I think the thing that Tarantino's just kind of doing is I think he's just saying like, hey, you know, it's almost that thing like people sometimes almost worship Bruce Lee a little too much, you know what I mean? Like, Let's just say, hey, he's a real guy. He's not the greatest person of all time. You know what I mean? He's really good. Let's not say he's not like a master, but like, you know, in a sense, it's that sort of thing. I always feel kind of bad for someone like Jackie Chan. Jackie Chan can make over 100 plus movies, but you know that those four Bruce Lee movies are always held at like higher regards than anything he's ever done. Though technically his stunts and his kung fu and all that stuff almost are like, he's like 10 times, if not beyond, like, you know, the capabilities of Bruce Lee, but he'll always be kind of second-class citizen to Bruce Lee. Yeah, I think the other thing to go with it is Bruce Lee was a philosopher, and he was the first big uh, martial arts star to make it big in America. So I think that's the other thing yeah. he has. It, well, to, that's the thing. Yeah, and I but, think it's because he also, because he died young, that, that generally always give, gives you that, like, continuous fame. It's, you know, puts you in the Jim Morrison kind of category, puts you in the Jimi Hendrix section, you know what I mean? Like... And then you're kind of locked. I don't know what it is. Once, once, you, once you die young, you're locked in as, like, legend status forever. You know, Bob Marley, all that kind of stuff. No matter what, it's like you just become kind of, like, the best and so on. And I mean, look at me wrong. I love Bruce Lee more than, like, anything else. Like, I'm not denying any of that. But I think it is one of those ones you almost got to give it that 360-degree view of, like, you know, it's like, yeah, he's not, like, in a sense, like, a god sent here from, like, another planet like he's Goku or something like that. You know, he's just a guy who kind of, like, brought martial arts movies to america in a sense and made it kind of popular and cool and that kind of spreads into like what we get to nowadays yeah and um the thing i was going to say i almost would in my own head canon i'd like to think if like cliff booth met bruce lee a little later you know like 73 or 72 something like that that he would be kind of like, okay, he's changed. He's a bit more humble now. He's cool. Like, I could honestly see if he got, like, Bruce Lee got his ass kicked by somebody, I could see him being like, I got to see how this guy how this guy functions. I got to see how this guy works and then kind of get respect for him, you know? Yeah, and and I think really, like, the main thing is, is that, because this, it has been, like, said before in multiple things. I remember there's, like, there's a stuntman guy on the Bruce Lee uh, box set or whatever that we got that um, talks about the same thing, too, that, you know, when Bruce did, like, he had no respect for American stuntmen. Well, Cliff Booth is kind of like, you know, your your main stuntman out there. So, of course, he's going to kind of take a little bit more, I think, offense to a guy who's coming around, you know, slapping around your stuntmen and so on, and, you know, guys you know in the industry and so on like that. So I I think that makes sense why he was. Yeah, probably in the longest run, especially with Cliff Booth's kind of attitude and so on the way he sort of is, I think that they they would have came around together. You know, even, who knows, even by, let's just say, like, 73 or whatnot, or 72 when they do an Enter the Dragon. You never know. Yeah. Well, also, to bring it back around the Cliff Booth and the Stuntman and, like, having respect for Stuntman, this and that, there's a uh, chapter, in that same chapter, I believe, where they're talking about these is like you won't find this as the official name but what people in the industry called a ringer 
and being the thing where it's a stuntman who's not a regular stuntman to the show. He's just kind of a fill-in for the day. That's what he's portrayed as. But a bunch of other stuntmen brought him there and pulled together to get him there to knock out the star, the actor, who's being an asshole and just making life difficult for them. It's like, okay, let's just... We, we got a spare stuntman today, so let him just come in and do this scene, and that's where he actually knocks out the guy, and, like, yeah, he may have got fired for the day, but all the stuntman, like, buy him drinks that night. Yeah, and, like, yeah, that's how he just makes some extra cash in his pocket and so on. He's almost like, the best way to describe it, he's like the goon in, like, a hockey game. Like, he's sent in there just literally to fight someone, knock him out, and then that's all he has to do, you know? And it's kind of a thing where... It's basically this thing like, oh no, we brought this guy in to help us with the shoot. Sorry he did that. We didn't know what was going to happen. You know? So that way they don't get in trouble for having like the main, the star of the show getting knocked the fuck out. They're saying the guy from Wild Wild West did that. He he named off a couple other people too. But I just found that to be really interesting. Because that's another thing about, I know I said this already, but it really kind of goes deep into like, uh, I know some of it's fiction, but he goes into politics of filmmaking back in the 60s and early 70s and goes into all that explaining how everything just kind of changed you know how everything like like there was even the part when like he has um when when uh rick dalton's talking to martin schwarz and he's saying okay that movie did pretty good in german did pretty good in germany did not do that great in France, but it did good in Belgium, where they speak a lot of French. So, all right, all right. You know, and then kind of going down, like, okay, so I think we actually have a chance getting you in this, getting you in that, you know. Just all the little details like that of uh, how, like, what goes into making a movie. To, I mean, some of the stuff you already kind of know, but just hearing it in a scene, which is you don't see too often in, a, in movies. Yeah, exactly. That's what I mean. It's you don't see it like a whole lot and kind of like fictionalized with nonfiction stories too at the same time, you know, giving you sort of history lessons, behind the scenes stuff. Like that's definitely the other thing too is I feel like this is like – I mean I know it's titled Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I feel like you should know what you're getting into like with that title alone. But it is made for like the the person who's really into like movies and real – because like this was once like – I feel like if you're kind of a casual person, you're like, hey, I've seen a Tarantino movie – before like this book would probably be almost a little bit over you'd be like holy shit what the hell are we getting into here like you know what i mean it's like they start talking shop like half the time in here of like you know the movie business and stunt organizations and so on one of my favorite parts is actually they they explain how and it's and i could totally see this being a scene in the movie i could totally see this like Rick did not like Cliff when he first joined the set of, of um, Bounty Law mm-hmm. and going off saying, like, he didn't like him because, quite frankly, he was wearing the same suit as him and he looked better. <laughs> just didn't like him. And then he wanted to prove that he could do his own stunts. So there's a part where he's to get lit, lit on fire and it goes into this elaborate thing of how they mixed up the suits and it didn't have the proper... Um, chemical on it so well, it just they, they, went up they, the dye that they put in there was what they had everything right but they forgot that they dyed it with you know a certain dye that was like 80 percent flammable some that's what it was something to that effect and then like it happened and rick did the thing he knew he wasn't supposed to do but he couldn't help himself he started running and that's where cliff just said rick you're standing in a puddle drop to the ground <laughs> <laughs> and it's like and it's like and they became best friends ever since 
And then, like, after that, like, around, like, not too long from that scene, he's talking about he was trying to get in the mindset, and that's where he realized he killed people? How many people? And he started counting how many Japanese? At least 16. (laughs) He just counting. He's like, well, how do you kind of get in the mindset of killing a person? Like, well, you're never going to kill a person because you got a career. So here's the next best thing you can do. And goes into this big, long monologue about get yourself a pig, feel the pig, get to know the pig, feel around, just feel the life in the pig. And when it starts to cozy up and warm up to you, get a knife, stick in its ribs, turn it, And it's only going to take about 30 seconds, but those 30 seconds are going to feel like three hours. It's going to squeal, it's going to wreathe, it's going to bite you, it's going to do whatever it can to get out of it. And that is probably the closest thing you're going to legally know what it's like to kill kill a person. And then, like, Rick's thinking the hypotheticals, like, well, I have to get someone to help me carry the thing in there. I'm going to get blood all over my pool, you know, this and that, like... Fuck that! I'm not doing that. <laughs> yeah, I love how he just like he goes through all the things he talks himself out of it and so on. But yeah, like just that whole explanation of like how you take because he even talks about like before like yeah he's like you know I'd sneak up you know when we we're in the Philippines and we're attacking the Japanese and so on like that you'd wait for a guy to get like a rock in his boot or something like that and then you'd come up right behind him cover his mouth stab him you know hold him until he you know kind of bled out and just turn to a big old you know thing of dead meat in your hands. Yeah. Yeah, he, his war stories are really interesting. Because that's the thing is, it's like that's these. I feel like once I know we said this like when we walked out of the movie theater, but like you literally could just have like the cliff only movie, and I think that thing would be pure amazing. <laughs> oh, it would be. It would be. You know, like, but I think Taron. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, I was just gonna say that this is just like just that character alone is just one of the coolest you know cinema characters you know I've seen like probably in almost anything. Well, just the idea of of a of a stunt man who goes on adventures just something about that's just really entertaining you know yeah well just some just some guy well it's funny because i think about because like that bitter old fuck character i have is actually technically like an old he's just like the old version in a sense but I, even though i technically made that before even once upon a time in hollywood but it's like he literally is an old stuntman vietnam vet you know I, he was originally a Cor- korean vet but then once again like it was like 10 years later i'm like yeah i guess he's vietnam now let's let's, let's be honest but it's just like <laughs> there's something just cool about that stuntman kind of like you know, going out there with all his skills and so on like that, you know, and putting him there. I mean, there's even, there's also another scene I remember I thought was kind of weird because I was like, where was this scene going? But then I saw where it ended up like a couple chapters later, but there's like in the 50s, like Cliff is like in France or something like that. And he needs a job and he talks to like a bunch of pimp guys and so on. I mean, like it literally goes in like this like long chapter of this like French pimp guy trying to explain to him like the whole like how pimping ain't easy in a sense but like it, it's got like the most amount of fucks that you probably could have in like a novel of like like five pages <laughs> it's like fucks like every like like fifth word in there or something like that yeah that's right I forgot about yeah, that because it was, at first I'm like where is this going like what does this have to do and like what it turned out to be is that after he kind of goes through the whole pimping thing and he explains how it kind of goes and so on like that and I just love how the English Cliff's like Man, that's a lot of work. I mean, like, not only do I got to take care of these women, got to have them go out, got to con them into doing this, then I got to fuck them myself, and I got to fuck them a lot, because apparently that's how you keep them in line, and so, like, this, like, he's like, oh, that's, like, way too much fucking work. <laughs> and I think that leads into, um... The Charles like, Manson thing. Killing the Italian guys or something, right? Oh, killing the Italians. No, I, maybe that is that. Because but... he's on a date with a girl who's an escort. I thought that was a separate scene, though, like, because I thought that... Might be, might be separate, yeah. 
But what that really le- le- led into is that, like, that was almost like how when he f- saw Charles Manson, he kind of realizes, like, oh, this guy's kind of pretty much, oh, like, right. he's doing the pimp thing, really, in a sense. He's, like, manipulating these women, using them, having them do all, like, the bidding and so on like that. And, like, it kind of, that was where the sort of the tie was in there. Um, the well, other, the, oh, yeah, go ahead. Well, the other thing with Charles Manson, it kind of goes more into, because the movie, he's just in one scene, and he's mentioned a few times. Yeah. The movie, the, the book goes into, like, a bit more of, like, he is just a total, like, fuck up, you know, and you realize that he was speaking all, and you, I'm sure there's documentaries saying this, and I think I remember hearing this before, but then having this book, I, I can see this part being true. I don't know for a fact, but I can definitely see this being true, where he basically burned all his bridges with, um, I don't remember which member of the Beach Boys, because he's just like, well, they kept on having parties over there, they'd help themselves out, they had a bunch of dirty hippies just, like, trashing the place, taking advantage of the place, they just eventually, he the day he was going to ask Charles Manson about this song, about letting him, help, helping, produce, helping him produce this record, that's where he wasn't there anymore. And uh, Tate, Sharon Tate and... Uh, and uh, Polanski lived in the house by then, by the time I went to go ask him. And the whole thing about how he was just like, everybody, all the stupid fucking hippies, thought something to the effect of like, it's no big deal, man. It's a, it's okay. I mean, if, if, if you did get the, the gig, it'll be cool. But you don't. It's okay, man. And no one, Manson was like, fuck! <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's just that thing that, like, I love the fact that, like, he has, like, in a sense, his family, but it's, like, the second that if, like, literally if Mick Jagger gave him a call and said, hey, I need an opening act, he would have just been like, I'm out here, guys, figure it out, fuck you, like, that's all I wanted, I just kind of fell into the cult thing, like, I just just really want to be Bob Dylan, that's all I wanted to be was Bob Dylan in life. And they say that, like, one of the, uh, I think 2020, like, the Alp song on 2020 was actually a, uh, charles manson song that he took credit for and i guess it's up in the air if he really did write it but like like you know what this guy fucking mooched off us for like a couple months trashed our fucking place strained all our friendship fuck him he's not getting the credit for that song yeah we're gonna rework that song because that was about the one thing good he played and uh yeah we're making money off of it like felt like that was the way to get it back and so on like that and they kind of went into detail of like how like he was he was like he was good, but he wasn't Neil Young. He wasn't Bob Dylan. He wasn't Crosby, Stills, Nash. Wasn't this, wasn't that. And those that was a dying genre by this point. So why do they want to hire him? Yeah. It's funny they say it's like the dying genre. And then Jim Croce comes out and, <laughs> and continues the yeah. folk and John Denver and all that stuff. I felt like <laughs> maybe if he would have waited just a little bit longer and just didn't get all caught up in that family's business, you know, <laughs> well, there would have been a <laughs> well, second coming for him. It only didn't kill, like, four or five people, yeah. And then, like, but the other thing on top of that, though, it's also, like, yeah, because it was, I know, I, I wasn't I wasn't trying to be like, yeah, that music's fucking dead, like, Neil Young's my favorites. But at the same time, it's, like, I think that was the perspective of, like, a, of a producer, like, a Beach Boys producer by that point. Yeah. And through a producer, it would be like, it's dead. It's It was popular two years ago. It's never coming back. Never! Never! Like, all right, well, you, you see Jimi Hendrix play at Woodstock, you're like, uh, yeah, if you're not doing that, what are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Point. Like, I, I think that's sort of what happened is that, like, finally there's, like, this electric guitar and there's distortion and there's the, the the introduction of, like, huge solos, even though they had that before. But you know what I mean? Just, like, this massive, like, you know, in a sense, the rock and roll band, the Rolling Stones and whatnot. But um, the other thing that's kind of interesting, too, is the Charles Manson one, too, is they also go into one of those creepy crawls and he has a scene. And this actually right here, I feel like 
when they go through it, he's kind of like using, like, I think it's Pussycat and everything like that once again. And like when he's explaining when they break into like the rich neighborhood and so on and they're going in and she's like her viewpoint, he's kind of questioning her the way, like almost like a teacher in a sense. And she's kind of going like, oh, these, all these people are fucking rich and all this sort of so on like this. And they're all fucking, you know, the enemy and whatnot. And then Charles Manson's like, well, well, here's the thing. You know what? You know, I know we're in a nice neighborhood, but maybe, maybe a bunch of blue collar people pooled together their money and they're splitting the house of four people. You know what? We can't go in there and fuck those people up, you know, and those working class citizens, you know, and then he's, he has like all these like explanations and kind of like, oh, okay. <laughs> I see what he's good at right there, you know what I mean? Like, he's like, no, 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 we, we got to find some dirty fucking rich person, you know, and how we can tell is if you feel the pool. Feel the pool. Is it warm? Yeah. Yeah, the pool's fucking warm. Yeah, that, that means it's a dirty fucking rich person. So go in there and, uh, you go in there and you take those soiled panties off and you scare living daylights out of some old senior citizens. Yeah, that whole part, because it has this. That part was creepy because you're just waiting on something to happen. Because another thing about that is it kind of gets to the point of like Charles Manson's not really there, but he's in Pussycat's head more or less, and almost has this thing like she's having a conversation with Charles Manson in her head, and saying kind of like, "Okay, is the pool warm? Pool's warm. Who, who, who? How many young people can afford to keep a pool warm at night? The grass is cut nice and clean." That means it's going. That means that they probably have a gardener mm-hmm. go inside the house, check the vinyl. The vinyl is a bunch of Broadway musicals and shit from the forties. Yeah, They're old as fuck. Yeah, so kind of going through that, and then like, oh shit, are they going to kill people? Are they going to kill people? Because you hear stories about other. I don't know the details, but I think there's other people that the Manson family did kill, or at least were associated with killing. Wasn't it? Well, was Sharon Tate? And her friend's the only one. So I thought there was other ones who tried to get people to kill. There might be, because that's the thing about uh, Charles Manson is he didn't kill anybody. He obviously just orchestrated this. And that's where that weird theory is that uh, Tex, you know, was the one who did the killing of Sharon Tate and all that stuff. It technically wasn't a Charles Manson thing, but that's obviously up in the air, you know. Well, it's also like Tarantino even gave his... his, um, his opinion saying, well, I think it was more of a spur of the moment thing. I think they were going there to investigate and then something happened he said someone pulled up x y and z this happened and they were spotted and they freaked out and they said it's now or never we got to go in there and do it now and that's where it all went to shit but um i am trying to i'm trying to remember I, I thought i heard something that he orchestrated another death so for a split second i was like is this what it's going to be but i could definitely see some weird shit like the manson family possibly doing that i have no idea if they did do that just sneak in the house, fucking with them, and then, you know, running out of the house naked or whatever. But I can definitely see some weird, like, ass-backwards hippie logic in that. It's almost like the Dane Cook stand-up where he just talks about it. He's like, I just want to go to people's houses and just kick the front door in and so on like that. Don't steal anything. Don't touch anything like that. Just one of those ones, when they get home, they're going to be looking around going like, what the fuck did they take? You'll be weeks later. They'll be still searching. They're like, they had to have taken something. What the fuck did they take, though? <laughs> I forgot about that bit. <laughs> just that sort of thing. You know, that's also what the creepy curl kind of reminds me of. It just reminds me, because I feel like that's what it sort of was at first. It was just like, hey, we're, you know, we're just fucking hopped up tonight. We're bored. We don't have fucking video games yet, so uh, let's go out and fucking, you know, do Even stuff. if we did, we couldn't afford them? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or, or Charles wouldn't let it. He would just hog the Nintendo to himself. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so. Saying he's investigated. So, uh, 
See, those are always those many things. It's like, you know what? Maybe if we had video games, it would have kept there. You, you wouldn't be out running around doing creepy crawls at night. Because that's what happens when you don't have something to do. That's the idle hands or the devil's play things kind of stuff. I'll say, reading this, though, I mean, I already hated the Manson family, of course, but reading this, or my case, listening to it, it did make you just like, yeah, fuck these hippies. <laughs> it really doubles down on it, you know? Well, yeah. Not even in, like, the murder aspect, but just the whole kind of, like, just the whole, like, idea of, like, how fucking stupid you have to be to fall for this shit. And I know, granted, he got a lot of people from broken homes yeah. and all that. Yeah, well, because uh, I kind of think know. about that. Like, you sort of look at pe- kind of broken people, like, you sort of known throughout life, and you kind of go, shit, at probably 15, they could have got captured by Charles Manson like a Pokemon and been on that ranch. You know what I mean? Like, there's there's sometimes that kind of thing. It's like, I think it was the older you get, especially you're like, well, they're a fucking idiot. And especially if you don't have, like, a broken family or any of that kind of stuff, you know, and you're kind of a little bit more well-educated and so on. But you could just see if, yeah, if you're just kind of a dumb 14-year-old that doesn't have anywhere to go, you hate life and so on like that, it would be, you know, in a sense, like, Charles Manson could prey on, like, emo kids in, like, the 2000s if he really wanted to and have a total army, you know? It just it, it just takes that right just moment. Manson with, like, a emo reverse mullet cut? <laughs> yeah, exactly, you know? It's just one of those ones that just, it was just right timing and everything, and it's almost like he was utilizing, like, the, the hippie, like, kind of freedom type stuff like kind of just worked out to his advantage i think it's one of those ones like literally after that moment people started going like oh shit we gotta be careful of this freedom act thing you know what i mean like let's go back <laughs> to not trusting people again <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah yeah we're a lot safer when we don't trust each other yeah but i'll, I'll say this the uh, going oh one 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 more thing we should probably mention about the book is and it's kind of sim- similar to the movie, but kind of expands on this as well. When you read, when you, um, whenever they're filming the scene for like Lancer or whatever, it does almost just become like a mini episode of Lancer for a second. And for a minute, you, f- you forget you're watching um, a movie about actors for a minute because you're just so invested. And then he fucks up his line and then, you're like, oh yeah, that's right. We're watching a, a movie about an actor. Right. Okay. This has, like, full-on, like, chapters where it's just an episode of Lancer, basically. And I'm curious, because Lancer was a real show, so I'm curious to know how much of this was, like, Quentin Tarantino twisting it around or just rewriting this show or whatever, you know? Yeah, cool, because it goes into, like, hardcore details of, like, all the characters in there and Johnny Lancer and all that stuff. But, like, it's weird because it's, like, when I read it, like, that show sounds, like, so, like, it almost sounds like a Sam Peckinpah movie. I'm like, I'm, all I was thinking was, like, that can't be what would be on TV, though, in 69, though. Like, that feels like, I could see that as a movie in 74 or something like that. But, I mean, just the fact that, like, you know, it's almost like, you know, Johnny Lancer gets thrown out of his home with, like, his mom and whatnot like that. And then she has to become, like, a prostitute to, like, keep them alive and so on like that and do all kinds of, like, weird shit. And then she gets, like, murdered in, like, a back room and gets her throat slit. And that puts him on this, like, revenge trail because at 14 – it's like – that always feels like typical – that almost feels like a very, like, Tarantino thing. It's like, at 14 years old, his mother was – her throat was slit. And then the jury found him not guilty of the man. So he spent the next 10 – it's almost like a Batman story if Batman killed. He spent the next 10 years finding <laughs> down like killing his mother's killer and the 12 jurors and putting them all in the grave or in the ground i that made me want to see like a reboot of lancer or something part of me feels like it's a show tarantino really loved that got canceled and he wants that show to come back so he's trying to get people intrigued and excited about it you know and there's no way because there's there's some parts in the scenes where they're you know 
saying fuck and shit and all that. You know that's not on the TV in the 60s or early 70s. So I am curious to know, like... Shit, that wouldn't even be on TV uh, technically nowadays, even like on regular TV, unless it was bleeped out. (laughs) Yeah, or FX, yeah. Um, well, even FX is still be, regular TV. I mean, it's just it's just they, they say they say shit. They can whatever, say shit, but they, but they can't say if fuck. It's like, if it's like after ten or eleven, like sometimes they'll do that. Like, like Comedy Central did that with South Park a few times, I think. Uh, like yeah, special, like this is a spe- this is a special uncensored version or whatever. Yeah, but well, yeah, not, but that, that only that happened like happens. ten years ago, like or you know maybe a little bit more than that. So it's like, yeah, that's, that's like yeah, no need. Yeah, no need to split split hairs on that part. I'm just saying, like, it's one of those things I'm curious to know, like, what, like, what, where this thing could go. You know what I mean? Like, it sounds like, this sounds like a good show, but I know it doesn't have this much graphic detail in the in the actual show you know what i mean yeah that's what i mean is i just it felt like it was a hardcore movie like i i could see it as a 70s movie i just had a hard time believing that was a 69 tv show with that but then again sometimes i think some things have that kind of premise you know but it, when it shows on screen it's going to be a lot of cutaway and you know kind of implied type stuff yeah you know and, yeah. and reworded differently and safer and so on you know like that but it's still it was very interesting all the details they go into there and so on um also even coming to those details like something else is really neat about this too is they give more scenes with tarantino and the little girl on the set and so on and how they have almost more of like this like you know back and forth conversation and even kind of to the fact that i like how it goes even the the end is you know it's not the, the end is not the same as in the movie at all but I thought that the ending in this was almost like a definite, perfect ending. Like, you could kind of have, like, just a nice, happy, like, puts a smile on your face. Like, yeah, that's that's the way you end it, you know? Just with, like, I, I guess, not trying to spoil it too much, but I guess we've already talked so much about this. Not saying that you can't go out and read it, because now you'll get, you'll get the more details. We're just giving kind of the overview. It's like, shit, you've seen the movie. But, like, I love how, like, there's that scene where, like, Rick's going over his lines, like for the next day after the scene we see in the movie and so on like that and at like midnight or something the little girl calls him I don't really know how she got his number so on I guess I don't know <laughs> 60s but whatever and um, she's like hey you going over your lines like he's like yeah I'm going my lines like what you called to check up on me and so on giving her kind of attitude and so on because she's kind of been giving him attitude and stuff I like how this little 8 year old talks fucking shit <laughs> but um, she's like hey let's go over our lines together and they go over the scene and they like kind of kill it and they like really act it out and so on like that back and forth over the phone and so on like that and then you know the whole time you know especially in the book explains it more that Rick's kind of in that place where he feels like he's a washout he feels like he's a loser like he just doesn't really know what's wrong with him and so on like that you know just like things aren't going well and then she kind of after they do the scene they're like man we fucking killed it we're gonna kill it tomorrow and so on like that the little girl's like isn't our job amazing? Like, literally. Like, isn't it the coolest thing in the world? Like, can you even believe that people pay us to do this? And so on. And it kind of, like, makes Rick think for a second and go, yeah, that's right. Our job is fucking sweet. Like, wait a second. My life is fucking awesome. I don't know what I've been really complaining about this whole time. Like, I've been bitching and moping this whole time. And at the end of the day, I'm living the fucking dream. And then it just kind of ends and it's like, hey, well, tomorrow we'll, we'll go on the set. We'll kill it, and then I like it's like almost like the last line is like they went out and they fucking knocked that scene out of the park. <laughs> yeah, that that's a really good way to end the book, I think, just because it did have this. He did. I'll say the only part that really because there's a lot of parts that just kind of linger and meander, mm-hmm. but in a good way. The only part that really kind of went on too long for me was there's a part when they were debating about like 
that's where Caleb wants to take my character and make him, make her his child bride, and this and that, and that part, like, okay, I fucking get it. Like, that part just kind of went on yeah. to me for a little bit. But beyond that, the, the rest of that, their, their dynamic and their scenes together worked really well, and that was a great way to end it. And I kind of get why, because, like, they ended it this way. Because it doesn't end with a big, awesome action scene, which is the preference, but at the same time for this book, the way it's going, it is much more of a day in the life with, like, some flashbacks. And, you know, since, you know, a book doesn't need, to, I think, to end with an epic action scene. I think that's that's best for visual media, I think, for reading. This one kind of solidifies, like, the overarching of the Rick character, in a sense, being, like, the whole way through. Because the other thing that's interesting in this one is they really, other than just, like, mentions of Italy and so on, it never goes into, like, the Italy part or anything like that too much. Other than, like, there's that one scene where, they're like, uh, Brad Pitt's character's over there, and there's that old drunk actor, whoever, like, the, the one rule on the set is you don't give him fucking alcohol. He doesn't get money, he doesn't get this, it's like, he's gotta be sober and so on like that, and I love how, like, when Brad Pitt sees him there, he knows he's not supposed to give him alcohol, and he decides to give him the gym ball just because it's like, fuck it, I just want to see what happens. <laughs> And, like, even Rick's like, what the fuck are you doing? And like, ah, i do it again. I don't give a shit. Yeah, that's all I mean. He's like, I'd do it again in a heartbeat. <laughs> but, um... Yeah, it does have a lot of those things where it just suddenly jumps ahead. Like, that's when they were filming one of their spaghetti westerns. Yeah. Or, you know, in Italy, so... But for the most part, it doesn't have very much, in a sense, like, future... Like, the book almost takes place in, like, those two solid days. And it doesn't have, like, the future scenes. I like how sick talk about the future scenes. <laughs> They have jetpacks and fight robots and shit. <laughs> yeah, the, the, those scenes. But, you know, I don't know. O overall, I think, you know, for anybody who's a Tarantino fan and just a movie fan in general and so on, like, this book really does add a lot of great value to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the movie, and so on like that. It's just, it's like you got, like, this random, it's, it's, you know, it's like when we were on, like, in a sense, when we watched the Super Mario Brothers, like, extended cut, and you got those extra 25 minutes, now it's definitely way more than that, but it's almost that kind of thing where it's just like, you gotta see it just a little bit more depth. You gotta see more Dennis Hopper. You gotta see that. That's what this thing almost feels like. It's like getting that extra extended cut. It's like getting the Justice League, you know, four-hour cut, you know, or six, what the fuck, was it six hours or four hours? Four hours. Four hours. I, I was getting confused with an Italian movie I was watching, but um, it's like one of those ones where, like, it just gives you that so much more extra details, the characters, scenes, and I actually think that being in a novel form just kind of it gives it, like, maybe a gimmicky feel, but that's not, like, a bad thing, you know? It's just like, hey, here's this cool little extra way you can kind of indulge, and it's something different for Tarantino. I mean, I bet you for him, it's like, hey, it's like almost taking a little bit of a break from what I normally do, you know? I think it's super cool. Mm -hmm. Well, and also, reading this, because, you know, he says that he's done with movies after his next movie, and he's going to do plays and books... Reading this makes me look forward to future books he's going to put out, whether it be just film theory books or fiction, you know? Yeah, no, I, I think both doing, like, yeah, both types of stories. Because that's the other thing, too, is I'm looking forward to, like, all his books he's going to, like, his history books and so on on film. Because I feel like that in itself, you know, it, I think, in a sense, you know, because Tarantino spends a lot of time in between movies. I feel in those in-between times is that's when he does all this, you know, ridiculous research and so on, you know? Yeah, yeah, it definitely shows in his work, you know, just how many just throwaway lines he has about film history or this actor, or this producer, or this set designer, you know, so. Yeah, so I just feel it's just all that, like, hanging out, reading, researching, all that good stuff, but, um, yeah, definitely one of these ones totally worth checking out. 
I would say a definite must read, but um, beyond all that, you got any final thoughts on this? A definite must read if you're a big Tarantino fan. So, and uh, yeah, I really dug this book. I'm glad I got the, I I like to buy the physical one just to have it on my shelf. Yeah, well, they they talk about in the back of the book, it does mention something of like, there's supposed to be a deluxe hardcover edition coming out. Oh, okay. Maybe I'll wait on that. So it, I kind of like the idea of just it being looking like a little paperback. You'd get off like a rotating rack, but a deluxe hardcover edition. Maybe we'll see what happens. You yeah, know, well, I, I mean, it's like, I, like, I feel like this other. is a book I would totally rebuy it again too, like and have both versions. Like, you know, I I I was just super sold the whole way. As I said before earlier in the show, it's like it would be kind of cool for some of his other movies if he, you know, not all of them I think need it, but like some of like I even feel like Inglorious Bastards would actually be kind of cool to have. Um, even a novelization and add just more character backstory to that too. He has a tendency to, and I don't want to hold us up too much longer, but I, he has this tendency to leave people wanting more. Cause sometimes you hear about some of the concepts he came up with. You hear like kill bill volume three has been on hold for a long time. The opportunity to make Pulp Fiction two or a movie about Vince Vega and the Vega um, brothers, the Vega brother. Like I, I forget Mr. Blonde's real name, a Vic Vega, I think. Yeah. The, the opportunity to make the movie about them has passed. There's been a couple of times where he's talked about making sequels and prequels and whatever, but it never really came up. Maybe Kill Bill 3. He's saying, because recently, you know, he, he likes Uma Thurman's daughter. He's like, might be a fun movie to put make, like, uh, Uma Thurman and her daughter on the run, this and that. Like, because he even already worked with her. She was the one that drove away in uh, the movie when the Manson family goes in to try to kill, uh, share, goes in to try and kill rick dalton cliff booth yeah but so, she's, she's the runaway one yeah yeah so it would be uh, so he has a tendency because like he he had a idea for inglorious bastards where it's a bunch of like the inglorious bastards and a bunch of black dudes go on a murder spree in the south on the kkk mm-hmm. it's like why has that movie not been made but at the same time i feel like he just kind of likes to tease people make them want more and because just so he doesn't have to disappoint, you know what I mean? Yeah, and I think that's it. And I also think too, he he's one of those ones like like all of us. We we, we get a big idea and so on like that. And you know, you don't always act on everything you say, even though you have tons of great ideas. You know? Yeah, so I don't always doesn't. He just speaks your, his mind in the moment, kind of thing. Yeah. So I mean, like I will say, if Kill Bill three was like the final one he went with, I think that would still be kind of a. A still a pretty solid way to kind of end it you know I know even on that podcast he was talking about sort of an epilogue film which makes me wonder if he would have something that was kind of like almost like low key sort of almost like a Reservoir Dogs you know it doesn't have to be necessarily you know Reservoir Dogs but I mean like something where it was just like almost kind of a simple movie where it didn't have a whole lot of locations and was almost more talking than anything else and I could see sort of that by that standard but um, if you wanted to go off a bang I feel like you'd use the Kill Bill 3 yeah well I could also see like I mean was was the example I was gonna make? Um, he uh, shit. What was it? What was it? Um, Kill Bill. Go with the bang. This and that. Oh yeah. Um, for a minute, for a minute, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood almost seems like a movie that. Oh wow, this is the first movie he made where no one got shot or got brutally killed. This is almost just kind of like. Uh, like a comedy it's just more of just kind of like a dramatic comedy and then i'll like oh wait no here it is at the end (laughs) (laughs) oh fuck that's right it's a tarantino movie someone's gonna die fucking horrifically yeah like i watched uh, reading uh listening to the audiobook made me want to watch true romance again and i was like the whole part when um 
she when Alabama is killing um, Tony Soprano. That part, I'm like, this is like, this isn't just like Pulp Fiction violent or Reservoir Dogs violent. This is like Inglorious Bastards, Kill Bill violent right here. I forgot about how brutal this scene was. Yeah, so, exactly. That 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 one is. Well, I feel like it's Tony Scott can kind of probably push that envelope too because it's like, dude, Tony just made blockbuster after blockbuster after blockbuster. Let him do whatever he wants. He wants to do the Tarantino script. Go for it. And then the the whole like three way shootout at the end in the hotel room. It's not just like oh blood packets. It's like whole things of like Nesquik strawberry syrup just shooting out. Like shit, I didn't know the body had that much blood. So it's almost kind of like before he even did Kill Bill, he was already kind of laying the foreground for that insane vi- that same level of violence. Because even then, even though Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction were still violent, still deserve their R rating, they seem somewhat tame compared to things he's made later. At least violence wise but i'm sorry i'm getting off another topic there um i'm wondering if his next movie will be some bombastic action film or if it is going to or not or even a big bombastic action film just a couple of big violent scenes or if it's going to be soft toned down you know yeah exactly and then i I do kind of wonder like you know i know he's got this in his head that he's gonna do 10 but I think, like, many people, you, you sit down on the couch for, like, a while, and then you kind of get that point, like, shit, I gotta do something, like, you know what I mean? Like, th- that's like when the musicians say, like, okay, that's it, that's the final tour, and then I think they go home, and then they're just sitting there by themselves being like, well, this fucking sucks. <laughs> it was great <laughs> for, like, two months, and then all of a sudden I was like, oh, you know? Cause, and I, I get where he's going, because the way he described it is he wanted to make sure that, like, well, he, he made out that, like, old filmmakers don't make good movies. I'm like... Wolf of fucking Wall Street is almost like Martin Scorsese's best movie he ever made. Like, and he made that like in his seventies. I don't know what you're talking about. I, I really, he's one of my favorite directors or Tarantino very well might be my favorite director. That being said, he says a lot of like, he has like a little bit of a snobby, not snobby, but he has a weird it, it, taste. A lot it of it is a little like, bit snobby. He, I will say he is a little snot. Yeah. Well, he, it's like weird. Cause like, I remember one year he was putting out his list of like his favorite movies and there's some movies he's very dismissive. I know it's like very different genres, very different time. He called Enter the Dragon a piece of shit. Yeah. Yet the year Lone Ranger came out, that was one of his favorite movies that year. <laughs> and it's like, I know you like Westerns, but really, Lone Ranger? I mean, I love Westerns too, and I was looking forward to that movie. But really, Lone Ranger, you're going to say Lone Ranger was a pretty good movie. Enter the Dragon's a piece of shit. Enter the Dragon's not as good as... Fist of Fury or Way of the Dragon, but piece of shit, really? Well, and, and sometimes I feel like he does the sort of the hipster thing, be like, hey, Enter the Dragon's the popular one, so I'm going to say fuck that one, and I'm going to like the other one instead. Sometimes I think there is a little bit of that there, you know? Because I'll say this, mm-hmm. you know, okay, Tarantino, when, let's say, Enter the Dragon came out, when he was 12 years old, I'm pretty sure he probably thought that movie was fucking sweet. You know what I mean? Like, I, I think he's just saying in hindsight. Could, could you imagine a 12-year-old watching Enter the Dragon or whatever and like, 73 saying that movie sucks? No, I think it's, like, scientifically impossible. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's definitely one of those ones that, like, I think sometimes, I think he likes to put down the big ones, sort of, you know, and... I don't know. He but, also said that Ma- he, he also said like Matrix two and three at one point in time was one of his favorite movies of all time, but he disliked two and three so much it couldn't be one of his favorite movies anymore. He says like I like it still; it had an impact, but it's not as high on my list because two and three almost ruined it for me. I'm like, huh, okay, well, it's like you know, and he still makes fantastic movies. I'll still be there for his movies, 
but he still does have a little bit of kind of like the really did okay whatever you know and then plus that statement of like past a certain point directors aren't as good i'm like i mean say what you will about some martin scorsese movies but wolf of wall street like you said is one of his best fucking movies yeah, like i like it's fucking hilarious you know, departed i love fucking departed yeah the, the that's Departed. that's I another one too he's made in like the 60s you know what i mean uh i mean shit even ready player one by steven spielberg i mean like i know it's like based off a book and so on but he, i feel like that still showed that steven still knew what he was directing yeah exactly but regardless i mean i'll still see i'm still a big fan of tarantino and he's entitled to his opinions but there's just some of those like you know, I guess hipstery things, but we all every so often, I'm sure there's things we've said on this show. Oh yeah, that other people go, "What the fuck?" Yeah, yeah you know, I, I, Young I know. Guns two over Young Guns one. What? Yeah, yeah, so. I know. Every once in a while, I'll meet somebody and then like they'll be like, "What?" But then I'm like, "Oh, they probably haven't seen Young Guns two yet," because I feel that's one of those ones. That's what you say, like, "What Young Guns two can't be nearly as good." It's like you just haven't seen it yet. That's the thing. When you watch fucking Young Guns two, you'll know what it's about. I know it's PG thirteen. I know it has the cheap cardboard case but trust me it's it's the better one yeah believe me it's, it's a fucking amazing western like it'll blow your mind western good you know it's, that, that might be almost one of the best sequels ever put out <laughs> it shouldn't be like <laughs> like you would never think would be that amazing but um but yeah no uh, i guess uh before we all ramble this all out once upon a time in hollywood check that out we'll put a little link in the description there you can go grab yourself a copy of the book in physical form kindle form get yourself it in uh audible form and have it read to you you know, just like like a little like bedtime story where Jennifer Jason leave, you know, reads you to sleep and pat your head. Well, you don't get that part, but you know, you can imagine it though. You can you can imagine you can pat yourself and imagine it's Jennifer Jason Lee. You know, pick pick whatever movie you want her from and, and just imagine it. And, and uh, that, that's what you get when she reads it to you. But um, no, I I fucking love the living daylights out of this. You did. Um, totally awesome. I, I don't know what more I could say. We talked to living. We talked almost more on this than like I even thought we would have been able to. But like. It's just that fucking good and that cool. Like, I almost wish we had more people to talk to about. Because this is one of those ones, like, a movie you can go around and talk to people about. Be like, dude, did you see this? Fucking awesome. This is one of those ones you're never going to have anybody else to talk to it about. Except for, like, people that are hardcore into Tarantino. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, beyond Uh, all that fun stuff, I guess, uh, go to oldmanorange.com for more podcasts, comic books like Pizza Boys, uh, old animations, and all that other fun stuff. I'm Spencer Scott Holmes. And I'm Ryan Dunnigan. We'll see you some other time. Later, folks.